For the last several years, in and out as they have been a part of the area, the family of Alain and Kimberly Duarte have been a part of our church. And uh, you maybe in recent weeks have noticed in particular their children in children's church or in your Sunday school class as well. Uh, the Duartes are leaving. They're going to New Mexico uh, where they'll begin uh, serving as house parents at the ranches, in uh, which is a, a home for uh, uh, teenagers and and chief in uh, New Mexico, and uh, we wish them both well as they go, and hope in the providence of God maybe someday you will come back to us. All right, everybody, I'd like you to stick your left hand out like this, right, like this in front of you. Okay. All right. Now, there's visitors here, so don't groan, please, like that. It's not a good testimony. It's not a good testimony. Uh, We're going to pray together. This morning, we're going to sing a prayer, and we're going to uh, clap in a way that it seems to magnify or emphasize the message of what we sing. We're going to sing that simple chorus, bind us together, and we're going to clap as we do it. All right, now this is what you're going to do here. Um, you're going to uh, clap the left hand of the person sitting next to you first, so their hand, then you're going to hit your leg, your leg, the bottom of your hand, and your hand twice. Their hand, your leg, your leg, up down twice. Their hand, your leg, your leg, up, down, twice. Their hand, your leg, your leg, up, down. Oh, that's good. Not too bad. Here we go. Now we're going to sing. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us Obviously, we need a little practice. I, I noticed recently, uh, we, uh, we have started clapping, not when we sing, not when we sing, we don't clap when we sing, but we have started clapping a lot. I noticed in particular a couple of weeks ago when I announced, uh, when I shared with you the good news about uh, Frances Hershey, she's cancer-free again, another good report, people spontaneously break out into applause. We clapped a couple of years ago for the bridge that was completed. We clapped for pictorial directory announcements. We, I, Herb Samworth would never have tolerated that. I just, not sure what's wrong with us, but that's, it's okay. Uh, I've been a part of uh, four churches in my lifetime, uh, and each of them are in four different states. And by my recollection, I've had uh, seven different pastors. And the man who was the, my pastor for the longest was a man by the name of Matt Rennie. Uh, pastor Rennie, as we always called him, started his ministry at my home church in Perry, New York, uh, when I was in elementary school, and he retired from ministry when I was a sophomore in high school. Uh, I remember uh, several things about him. 
Uh, he was a pretty good preacher. He studied hard. You could often drive by his house and his study light would be on. He was a night owl, in fact, and uh, he studied and studied. He sought to explain the Bible. He loved uh, alliteration, too. <laughs> Once he did a sermon series on 12 purposes of the church. It might have been 18 purposes of the church. They all started with the letter E. Evangelism, exhortation, edification, education, on and on they went. Uh, on Wednesday nights uh, during prayer meeting, uh, we would sing a little. We would have a devotional he would share with us. We'd share prayer requests, and the adults would break into groups to pray, and all the children would meet with him in one particular room in the church. It was a small group, but we were with him, and he drilled us in memorizing the books of the Bible and saying them in order, and he had a contest. There was ice cream prizes for the people who could say the books of the Bible the fastest, all 66. I think the record was down to 14 seconds or so. We worked hard. Pastor Rennie always wore a tie. He always wore a tie. One time, someone jokingly uh, suggested that he probably wore a tie with his pajamas. Uh, We thought it was funny. His wife silenced everyone in the church by answering, Who says he wears pajamas? It was an image no one needed to contemplate about any Baptist minister. One of the most helpful things that Matt Rennie did for me was when he asked me to serve. Um, Our church was uh, starting a new program for children. I'd never heard of it. It was called the WANA, and I was too old to participate, and I hadn't really thought about it very much until one day in, in that same room where we quoted the books of the New Testament and Old Testament to him, he asked me if I'd thought about serving in Awana, and, and I said I, I hadn't really given it a thought. And he looked at me and he said, I think you would do a great job, and I think you should try it. And that question set me on the path I'm on today. It was one of the most influential questions that anybody has ever asked me. If you've been around for a a church for a long time, you might have a similar story, a a significant encounter with a spiritual leader, a a deacon, an elder, a Sunday school teacher. Some of you have shared those stories with me. If you've not been around a church for for much, or if most of your experience to church leaders uh, comes from reading news about clerical scandals or watching televangelists, um, you probably don't have very good memories of, of pastors, spiritual leaders. In fact, uh, you're probably suspicious. And if all you do is watch televangelists, you are rightly suspicious. What's a pastor good for anyway? Why does God, among a local assembly in which we are all priests, the Bible says, in which we all have equal access to God, in which we're all equally children of God, why does he appoint some to... (coughs) Excuse me... (coughs) To lead, to teach, to preach, to to shepherd. This morning, what I want to do is I want to show you what a pastor is good for, and I want to do it from the book of Leviticus, chapter 6. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Leviticus, chapter 6, if you would. We're continuing to walk through this book of the Old Testament. It's the third book in the Bible, so again, it should be easy to find the first 100 pages or so of your uh, Bible. Leviticus 6. Um, You have heard me try to set this passage in context uh, several times. Um, This book, Leviticus, is a worship manual. It told God's people, the Israelites, 
those descendants of Abraham that God had rescued from slavery in Egypt and whom he had adopted as his own special people, it told them how to approach God. Uh, and what we find here in this book is not just, though, a system of rituals, but category-creating guidelines. Um, that is, the rituals and the procedures here point to deeper truths, greater realities. Uh, when we walk along the road, sometimes if there's snow on the ground and we're coming to church, we walk down Walnut Hill Road and up the driveway. And when we're on the road, we have a very simple rule, as, as the family goes, boys on the outside, girls on the inside. Um, that is, uh, Luke, my son, knows it is his responsibility to stand between cars driving by on the road and his sisters. That's what boys do. Uh, they protect their sisters. Uh, it's, it's a rule. It's a simple rule. And I know at this point in time, Luke does not provide much protection. I know that. I know that. But I'm trying to build categories in his mind that the women in his life are people to, that he uh, is to love and to protect. They're not objects to be used or abused or ignored. They're people to be cherished. And Leviticus is these rules that is trying to ingrain in the people these deeper realities about who God is and what God demands of us. This book is, is filled with rules that separate human beings from God. Not because God is tender or fragile or he needs to be protected. In fact, the opposite is true. The people are fragile before him. And the rules that enforce this separation between human beings and God made a statement about human beings and about God. God is perfect. He's perfect in goodness and beauty and mercy and justice. Human beings, we can do good things. We can be attractive. We can show mercy. And we do try to enforce justice. But we fall woefully short of God's perfect standards. Thus far, as we've been walking through this book... Uh, we've spent our time examining the sacrifices God requires. You cannot enter God's presence. You can't survive before holy God by yourself. You have to come with a substitute. A substitute who dies in your place, who sheds blood for you. And there are lots of different kinds of sacrifices that we've talked about. And they have, each have different meanings as we have uh, gone through these chapters. Now, last week, we finished the instructions for worshipers and began to talk about the instructions for priests, what the priests in particular are supposed to do, those who receive these sacrifices, how they were to receive them and what they were to do with them. And I suggested that this passage of Scripture speaks particularly to those who are engaged in spiritual leadership. I'm talking for two or three weeks Specifically to pastors and pastors-to-be, to elders and elders-to-be, uh, Sunday school teachers and Sunday school teachers-to-be, Bible study leaders, Awana leaders, campus ministry leaders, growth group leaders, those of you who are involved in spiritual leadership, caring for others. Uh, we've already discussed, uh, last week we talked about the importance of tending the fire of the gospel, centering your leadership on the gospel. Today what I want to do is I want to unfold two crucial tasks for spiritual leadership. And in the spirit and in honor of Pastor Rennie, they both start with the letter A. Uh, they are affirm and assure. Affirm and assure. 
Um, let, let's read the text, though. This is a long passage of the Old Testament law that I want to read. A, a Hebrew uh, scholar that I read occasionally actually prefers to call this the First Testament as opposed to the Second Testament, which is maybe better than old. But it's a long passage. It demands uh, attention. So listen to what the Lord told Moses, beginning in uh, Leviticus chapter 6, verse 14. These are the regulations for the grain offering. Aaron's sons are to bring it before the Lord in front of the altar. The priest is to take a handful of fine flour and oil together with all the incense on the grain offering and the burn, burn the memorial portion on the altar as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Aaron and his sons shall eat the rest of it, but it is to be eaten without yeast and in a holy place. They are to eat it in the courtyard of the tent of meeting. It must not be baked with yeast. I have given it as their share of the offerings made to me by fire. Like the sin offering and the guilt offering, it is most holy. Any male descendant of Aaron may eat it. It is his regular share of the offerings made to the Lord by fire for the generations to come. Whatever touches them will become holy. Now, this last sentence is both a blessing and a threat. You become holy by eating this bread. That is, uh, you become set apart, not miraculously perfect, but set apart, consecrated to the Lord's work. And uh, if you were a holy person and you wanted to become an unholy person, there were deconsecration ceremonies that you had to go through. Nazarites in particular, you know perhaps about taking a Nazarite vow. If you took a Nazarite vow, you would be holy. And then when the time of your vow had ended, you would have a de-holying, a deconsecration ceremony to become unholy. And this last sentence here is, a warning and a threat. If you eat the bread, you are holy. You're set apart for God's purposes. That's wonderful. But be careful because there's certain requirements. And if you're not deconsecrated properly, you uh, will incur greater guilt to yourself. Again, Leviticus is trying to create these categories. God is different than we are. And there are holy things that belong to God and there are, are, are us, common. Oh, let's, let's keep going here. The Lord also said to Moses, this is the offering that Aaron and his sons are to bring to the Lord on the day he is anointed, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half of it in the evening. Prepare it with oil on a griddle, bring it well mixed and present the grain offering broken in pieces as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The son who is to succeed him as anointed priest shall prepare it. It is the Lord's regular share and is to be burned completely. Every grain offering of a priest shall be burned completely. It must not be eaten. Now, he's trying here, and he's going to do it again later, to draw this distinction. If you bring a grain offering and you're not a priest, you bring it, some of it is burned, some of it goes to the priest. On the other hand, if you are a priest and you bring a grain offering, and you had to, morning and evening, if, you, if you're a priest and bring a grain offering, it's burned completely. You don't eat any of your own offering. You don't benefit from the own, your own sacrifice that you bring. Priests were required to bring sacrifices. Very soon after I started pastoring here, I was talking to somebody in the church about uh, offering envelopes and getting my own offering envelopes. And she said, you give money to the church? I said, yes, I do. She said, I thought maybe because you live, like you're paid out of what we give, that maybe you'd keep all that and you wouldn't have to give. No, um, I give. Uh, Actually, uh, never in the offering plate, I always give at the office, and I actually do always give at the office. Sometime in the next couple months, we'll have online giving, and I will give at my laptop when that happens. Uh, Let's keep going here. Verse 24. The Lord said to Moses, 
Say to Aaron and his sons, these are the regulations for the sin offering. We're moving from grain to sin. The sin offering is to be slaughtered before the Lord in the place the burnt offering is slaughtered. It is most holy. The priest who offers it shall eat it. It is to be eaten in a holy place in the courtyard of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches any of the flesh will become holy. And if any of the blood is splattered on a garment, you must wash it in a holy place. The clay pot the meat is cooked in must be broken. But if it is cooked in a bronze pot, the pot is to be scoured and rinsed with water. Any male in a priest's family may eat it. It is most holy. But any sin offering whose blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place must not be eaten. It is to be burned. Now, verse 10, verse 30, actually there is, again, distinction between the priest's offering and everybody else's. Anybody else who brings an offering, it's to be offered and the priest can eat it. When the priest brings an offering, though, and the blood like it's supposed to be is carried into the tent of meeting, it has to be burned completely. Priests can't benefit from their own offerings. All right, let's keep going. Verse one of chapter seven. These are the regulations for the guilt offering, which is most holy. The guilt offering is to be slaughtered in the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered and its, its blood is to be sprinkled or splashed against the altar on all sides. All its fat shall be offered, the fat tail and the fat that covers the inner parts, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins and the covering of the liver, which is to be removed with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them in the altar as an offering made to the Lord by fire. It is a guilt offering. Any male in a priest's family may eat it. But it must be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The same law applies to both the sin offering and the guilt offering. They belong to the priest who makes atonement with them. The priest who offers a burnt offering for anyone may keep its hide for himself. Every grain offering baked in an oven or cooked in a pan or on a griddle belongs to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering, whether mixed with oil or dry, belongs equally to all the sons of Aaron. Uh, now, <laughs> these regulations, this, this section of scripture here instructs priests in how to receive and how to process three different types of offerings. Grain offerings, uh, sin or uh, purification offerings, and guilt or reparation offerings. They are called together the most holy sacrifices. Did you see that word? That these are most holy. It's, it's in the text. Um, they, these grain offerings, of course, were symbols of dedication to the Lord. And then there were two, these two offerings, sin and guilt offerings, that, ref, that uh, dealt with specific violations of the law. Now, receiving these offerings involves certain duties and responsibilities, certain privileges. And the focus here in the text is on what could be eaten. Now, why is that? On the one hand, this was part of the payment that the priests received. This was their job was to offer sacrifices, to receive the sacrifices and to present them on the altar. And this was the payment that they received. They were not out with flocks. They were not out planting grain. This is how they they received their income through this food. Now, as the text goes on, as the book of Leviticus moves on, we're going to talk about this a little bit more because I read these instructions and I think to myself, what did the priests, wives and daughters eat? Because there's very specific instructions. The priests and their sons are to eat these in the tent of meeting. What happened to the women? They didn't starve, I'm sure. Um, in fact, the, verse um, 8 of uh, chapter 
uh, 7, talks about how the priest uh, receives the hide. That was part of his payment. You know, a burnt offering was to be skinned. So uh, he would take the skin, presumably take the skin home, and then his, wo- his wife would have a, a fleece. This is the first instance of a spiritual leader fleecing his people. So that wasn't worth saying, but we'll keep going here. Okay. Um, this is again, just on the one hand, this is just how they survive. This is God's payment system for the priests so that they were well fed. But a second reason why these offerings were to be eaten had to do with the culture. Do you remember that the nations surrounding the Israelites believed that they were feeding their gods? They believed that when they brought a sacrifice to their idols, that the idols lived and were sustained by the food. And if you brought good food to your idols, then the gods, whoever they were, would be kind to you. They would help your crops grow and they would help your sheep give birth. And, and uh, so it was kind of a, a barter system. Gods, I will bring you good food. You take care of me. Now, what's happening here, notice there's very specific instructions about this. These food sacrifices that are brought in are not eaten by God. In fact, the priests eat them. And they obviously eat them in the courtyard. You don't take them into the tabernacle where God lives. You eat them outside in the courtyard because the God of the Bible, he is not to be bribed. He is not dependent upon us for food. In fact, we're dependent upon him. We don't give to the Lord that the Lord will, that puts God in, in debt to us. God doesn't owe us anything. We owe God everything. And this regulation about eating these sacrifices outside where God lives would be a public sign. We're not feeding God. We don't feed the God of the Bible. And these are specific commands for priests. But following them, but by following them, they communicated a specific message to the worshipers. Their actions represent God's response to the worship of his people. And what they communicated is is our focus for this morning. Uh, first, what happened is the priest, the response of the priest served to affirm the people. It served to affirm the people. They serve the people by affirming them. I'm thinking specifically here of the grain offerings. The priests, by receiving these offerings, are affirming these acts of dedication to God. They took the offerings, they examined the offerings, they approved of the offerings, they offered some of it on the altar, they ate what was left over, and by doing so, they communicated to the worshipers that they, what they were doing was acceptable to God. It was pleasing to God. Uh, By God's appointment and measured by his standards, we receive your gift of dedication. We approve of it. We applaud it, this gift that you've brought. Shepherding people means affirming them, encouraging them, applauding and honoring them and delighting in their efforts, their dedication, their labor. This is an evident, it's evident here, but this shepherding care continues all the way through the Bible. This is what shepherds do. They affirm. It was part of our discipling ministry of our Lord. Affirmation played a huge role in the life of the Apostle Paul. I want want to show you uh, from the Gospels about uh, this in our Lord. First, uh, particularly Luke. You'll see that on the the green sheet, I think, that's written, uh, it's in your bulletin, these verses. Look at how the Lord affirmed his uh, disciples. I know the plot of the Gospels is often to show how the disciples misunderstood and were confused. But look here, even then, how the Lord affirmed his followers. 
Now, Jesus' mothers and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd, Luke 8 says. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. This is sweet affirmation. If you listen to me and do what I say, your family, your family. Look at Luke 10. In Luke 10, um, uh, Jesus has sent 72 people out on a special uh, preaching and healing mission, and they come back to him and report on what's happened. And look what it says. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Wow, his downfall was, was fast and furious. And these 72, wow, we did that? Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Satan, <laughs> falling. Yeah, that's what we did. Luke 18, look at, look at this passage here. Luke 18, a, a rich young man comes. He wants to follow Jesus. He turns away, though. And Jesus, very sad, looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to him, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Think how the Lord is affirming the disciples here. You've made a good choice. You made a wise choice. I know it has cost you dearly, but trust me, your dedication to to me and to what I am doing is honorable and it is worthy. Now, the Apostle Paul did this even more so in his letters. In fact, the next time you read through one of Paul's epistles, write down or circle or mark how many times did he affirm those he was writing to and, and offer encouragement to them. Just look at one passage here from Colossians 1. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. Paul's saying, your love for one another is astounding to me. And I've heard about your faith, and together there's just this hope that, that spreads and is infectious. I have people often, frequently, men and women who visit our congregation, say to me, um, your church is a very friendly place. You're very friendly at welcoming people. That's, that's marvelous. Paul here in this, this, this comment to Colossians, doesn't he take it a step further? Not only are the Colossians apparently friendly to one another, they love one another. You can tell this love in this congregation. It's deep. It's marvelous to see. Now, Hebrews was not written by the Apostle Paul, uh, but look at how the author of Hebrews affirms his people. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. This this question bears repeating. You You should ask yourself this. How much does affirmation play a role in how you lead, how you disciple, how you teach, how you shepherd? How attentive are your eyes and ears to what people are doing, how they're serving, the sacrifices they're making? It is very easy, trust me, to do this in our congregation. You don't have to look very hard to find this. 
There's, there's more going on than I could possibly know about. You affirm them. You care for them by affirming their dedication to God and saying it is an honorable thing the way you're serving. I know it costs you. I know there are sacrifices involved in coming every single Wednesday night to serve those kids, and it's tiring. And I know there are sacrifices involved when you sit down and you do your budget and you write those checks and, and you, you put them in the offering plate. There are sacrifices involved, in that, and that is a good choice. It is an honorable thing. It is a, a something that God himself will not forget. That's what the priests are communicating to people when they receive these offerings. We'll take them. We'll do with them what God commands because your dedication to God is honorable and worthy of affirmation. So spiritual leaders affirm. Now, uh, when uh, the uh, priests here, let's, let's turn our attention to the sin and guilt offerings. When, when priests received and reviewed these offerings, I want to summarize what they did with another word, the word assure. Assure. Assure people that God forgives, that he welcomes unholy people into his holy presence and he freely forgives. I want to show you that in the text. But before we do that, I, I know some of you have a concern already. You, there's alarm bells going off in the back of your head. So I want to, I want to mention that here just, just a minute. When I use the word assure, I mean assuring people that those who come to God, acknowledging their condition before him as those who don't meet his standards, who are guilty of sin and deserving of his wrath, those who turn to him in expectant hope, faith and trust, find forgiveness. Talking freely like that makes some people nervous. And I understand why. The, the reason it makes people nervous is that there are a lot of people who live with what has often been called false assurance. There are a number of bad reasons for believing you're a Christian. Uh, you're not rightly related to God. You're not a Christian because you're an American or because you've been baptized or because you're nice. Or because you pray, or because you like Jesus, or because you go to church, or because you've never murdered anyone, or even because you think Jesus was God's son who died on the cross and rose again. You can know the truth without believing the truth. That's the demon's theology, James tells us. False assurance is a real issue. It, it rises up in the pages of the New Testament, uh, the, the Second Testament. Um, look, Second Peter. Peter writes this. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Don't be deceived. Uh, live out what you believe. It needs to show up in your life. Often the work of faithful pastors involves shredding the confidence of complacent people or afflicting the comfortable, as the, the phrase sometimes goes. But we also have to comfort the afflicted. Assure people, God does freely forgive through Jesus Christ. Uh, there are people, I know there are people who need firm, harsh words. If you claim to be a Christian, and this is the sort of choice, these are the sort of choices you're making, you may not be a follower of Christ. That's, a, that's an important role. But there are equally tender-hearted people who are wondering, is forgiveness real? And one of the ways you faithfully shepherd them is by assuring them and reminding them. One of the ways that you guard against false assurance is uh, by communicating that forgiveness is free, but it's not cheap. 
Uh, that's actually in this text here, the, for this, this sense that forgiveness is free but not cheap. I, I see that here in, in how Moses told the uh, priests to take care of the blood. Look at verse 27 again. Whatever touches any of the flesh will become holy, uh, and if any of the blood is splattered on a garment, you must wash it in a holy place. I find that to be a stunning passage. Think about this. These priests, these, they have special priestly garments, white linen, and uh, they're, they're dealing with blood all day long. It comes from animals, and they're splashing it against the altar, uh, uh, against the, the, the burnt uh, offering altar. And, and apparently, they're supposed to do it without splattering any of it on themselves. I don't eat spaghetti sauce with a white shirt on. I don't know how... They did this. I don't know how their clothes were not just constantly covered with blood. Apparently, this is the expectation. They're supposed to have such care for the blood that they don't get any on them. And even if they do, you have to wash it out. And if you don't wash it out, if it doesn't come out, you have to burn the garment and and get rid of it. Something similar is going on here with this, this distinction he makes between clay pots and bronze pots. The clay pot is to be broken, but the bronze pot is just to be cleaned, cleansed. Now, why is that? Because uh, clay is porous and blood can seep into the clay and remain there. Bronze is not porous. You can wash the blood all out. You can't wash it all out of a, of a clay pot. What, what Moses is saying, what the Lord is saying to Moses is, is this. The blood that atones is precious, precious blood. It is not to be wasted. It is not to be treated idly. It is not to be left scattered around on various garments and in various pots. It is precious blood. Forgiveness is free, but it is not cheap. Uh, there is this system of worship here is setting up uh, a, a system in which thousands and thousands of animals a year would be sacrificed. The temple in Jerusalem had a sewer system to handle all of the blood that would run down from the altar. And every drop of it was to be regarded as sacred, special blood. It is holy blood that brings atonement. It is to be treated carefully. This is why the author of the book of Hebrews warns us. It says, do not trample on the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is freely offered, but it is not cheaply provided. This passage anticipates a worshiper coming to the tent. Can you imagine this man, this woman, who comes and they know they're guilty? They have committed some specific violation of the law. And and they bring their animal and they come in shame. And as they, they enter the tent of meeting, they take the knife, they lean on the animal, and as they slit the animal's throat, they sing Psalm 51, which is just this confession. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your loving kindness, blot out my transgression. I am guilty before you. And, and they bring this lamb. And if required, they bring the reparation and they confess and they come soberly and they come seriously. And the priest's job was to take the lamb and to have attentive ears and attentive eyes. They're to splash the blood against the altar and they're to eat the meat. And all of those things are signs to the one who's come that they have been forgiven. This person who came in shame. 
This person who came in sorrow sees all this happening. Oh, there it is, splashed against the altar. There the meat is on the altar. There he's, he's eating it. God has received my sacrifice. And they may have come with their head buried in shame, but they're supposed to leave singing for joy and rejoicing. There's forgiveness, real, true forgiveness. They've not been forgiven by a God who is in heaven and says, all right, I'll let you go this time, but don't do that again. And they haven't been forgiven on condition that they feel guilty for at least two or three more days. And they haven't been forgiven on condition that they accept second-class citizens in the kingdom. Well, you've done this. I'm not sure what's going to happen to you next. Freely, gladly, this sacrifice has been received. And freely, gladly, they have received forgiveness. There are people under your care in your growth group who desperately need to hear this. I know there are some who need a good gospel beating. I know that. But there are some in agony. There are some who are asking, is forgiveness really real for somebody like me? Is it really possible to be forgiven? They're under shame and guilt and pain. Say to them what the Lord Jesus himself said. I truly tell you that he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. This is God's solution. Don't hide it because someone might misunderstand. You're to celebrate it and announce it and delight in it. Everyone who comes, everyone who turns to Jesus Christ will find forgiveness. And that is good, good news. And the joy of your work, in contrast to these priests, is that you're not receiving bulls and lambs and goats, but you're offering forgiveness through the atoning, substitutionary death of God's own dear Son. And the Bible always argues from the lesser to the greater. If God received people who brought lambs and bulls and goats and he, he welcomed them into his presence, how much more? Will he receive you into his presence, you who come through Jesus Christ and his shed blood? You need to offer those under your care this assurance, this this comfort. It's your privilege. It's your joy. It's one of the ways that you serve them. If you take these up, these, these tasks, affirming and assuring, you will have no end of work. This always, always, always needs to be done. At almost any given moment, if you, if you go and look at my car, you'll find a book or two on CD. I like to listen to books, to audio books as I drive around. Um, usually they're novels, novels that I never have time to read any time else. But on the way to the hospital or wherever I go, I can listen. I borrow them from the library. There are some in the world very talented readers who with just very slight inflections can invite you into the story and wrap you in the, in the plot. Sometimes, sometimes I get home, oh, I'm home. I wonder how that happened. Um, this this, this is, is, a, is a book. It speaks very powerfully. In fact, this is the most dynamic book you have ever read. It contains the best news you will ever hear. It has a volume switch. Didn't know that, did it? This, this book has, has a volume switch. 
There is an audio version of this book. Don't don't get it at the library. God sets the volume switch for this book in the minds and hearts of those he has called to spiritual leadership. When you enter your Sunday school class, your growth group begins. When your growth group begins, you who are leading, you're, you're the speaker. You're the divine amplification system for communicating this message. And your voice is meant to add to the sweetness and the nearness of this message, of this book. Affirm those under your care. Assure them of God's great kindness. And do it with joy as their shepherd. Let's pray, shall we? Father, how delightful it is for us again to remember and to think about this uh, coming to the tabernacle, a guilty person, shame-filled, and leaving assured of your forgiveness. I'm mindful of the, 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 the parable that the Lord told about the tax collector who, who cried out to you, Oh, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said he went home justified, justified. How thankful we are, Father, for the, the privilege of, of announcing and declare, declaring forgiveness and peace with God through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I, I, I know there are men and women in our congregation who have deeply tender hearts and who, who often wonder, can you forgive someone like me? It's, it's astounding. Alas, and did our Savior bleed and did our sovereign die uh, for us, worms that, that we are. And yet we, we have the privilege of announcing this good news. Yes, for you, for you, for you. Would you fill, Father, our Sunday school teachers in our church and our Awana leaders and our growth group leaders and our elders with joy at the prospect of, of representing and amplifying and announcing that message? Fill it with joy. Fill us so that that joy would be the tenor and the tone of our congregation. You, dear Savior, have shed your precious blood for us. We will count it a precious thing by rejoicing in the forgiveness that we have. That's free, but not cheap. We pray these things, asking God that you would soften our hearts and sharpen our minds for your son's sake. We pray these things together, saying, Amen.